High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next student visionaries of the year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in this seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org students. That's lls.org slash students. You must remember a kiss is just a kiss, a cry for Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secrets and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century, part of the Panoply Network. I'm your host, Karina Longworth, and this is another installment in our ongoing series, Dead Blondes. Where are you going? Hollywood. Hollywood? Do you come here for excitement? I'm better than a human woman. Would you rather I be a brunette? My dress. Do you like it? I, I don't know. It's such a shock to see you dressed. I'm so alone. I'm so alone. Today, we conclude our miniseries on Marilyn Monroe. In this episode, we'll talk about Marilyn's hiatus from movies around 1957 and 1958, and the slow death of her marriage to Arthur Miller across the making of Some Like It Hot, Let's Make Love, and the movie Miller wrote initially as a love letter to her, The Misfits. We'll talk about what Marilyn's life was like after she completed her last released film, and we'll try to explain why and how she died, and why no one can seem to agree as to why and how she died. Join us, won't you, for the end of Marilyn Monroe. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. 
So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Back by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com remember. netsuite.com remember. netsuite.com remember. From the start, Marilyn had had doubts about marrying Arthur Miller. In between the private civil ceremony that legally married them and a subsequent reception in which Arthur and Marilyn would perform getting married for their friends, Marilyn's business partner, Milton Green, asked her, Do you really want to go through with this? Marilyn told him that she didn't. But when Milton began to leave the room to call the whole thing off, Marilyn called him back. She would go through with the marriage, she said. We've already invited all these people. We can't disappoint them. Marilyn Monroe desperately wanted to be loved, but she never had the courage to figure out that she could choose who to love. So she married Arthur Miller, like she had married Joe DiMaggio, because the men wanted her, and she so desperately needed to please that she couldn't stand to disappoint them. In the two years that Marilyn did not shoot a film, every day she kept two meetings, one with her analyst and one with Lee Strasberg. Over this period of her life, three men were fighting for control of her life, Strasberg, Miller, and Milton Green, with whom, at Miller's urging, Marilyn would begin to sever ties in 1957. That summer, she had become pregnant again and then lost the baby again when the fetus grew into her fallopian tube. By this point, she had desperately wanted the child and was grievously wounded by its loss. Her gynecologist told her that with the pills she was taking and the drinks she was drinking, she probably wouldn't be able to carry a pregnancy to term. But she did not quit drinking or taking pills. Instead, she started hanging around New York playgrounds, sitting alone in sunglasses and a headscarf, watching children play, occasionally asking mothers if she could hold their babies for a while. These mothers figured out that Mrs. Miller, as she referred to herself, was really Marilyn Monroe, but they never treated her like a movie star, and she didn't act like one. One of the mothers, Dahlia Leeds, who had recently immigrated from Israel, remembered that the Marilyn in the park was so different from the one presented in gossip columns that it permanently turned Dahlia off from the celebrity press. She was so different from her image, Dahlia remembered. Not a sex pot, not glamorous, 
but just an ordinary woman who was shy, curious, and lonely. One of the reasons she was so lonely was that she felt that her husband didn't want an ordinary woman. He wanted a goddess muse. And all the domestic time the couple was spending together was not actually helping Miller write. During Marilyn's entire hiatus, he struggled with the material that would become the screenplay for The Misfits, Marilyn's last film. In Marilyn's absence from Hollywood, Hollywood had conjured up a series of Marilyn copycats. By midway through 1958, the real Marilyn was well aware of newcomers such as Jane Mansfield, and she started making moves to get back to work herself. That summer, she agreed to take the kind of part that she had tried to move on from, that of a ditzy blonde whose purpose in the movie was to sing happy songs and be cheerfully objectified, in Billy Wilder's Some Like It Hot. Marilyn Monroe thought that the character in Some Like It Hot was the dumbest blonde she had ever played. The fact that Arthur Miller had suggested she take the movie because they needed the money, or he needed her to make the money while he finished writing The Misfits, gave her more ammunition to use against her husband. But she went into it trusting that Wilder would make a movie that would be worth the humiliation, as Seven Year Itch was. But Marilyn was a different actress than she had been when she made Seven Year Itch, and on Some Like It Hot, she didn't trust Wilder's direction. With the voice of the Strasbergs in her head, she demanded Wilder film take after take until she could feel good about what she was doing. Often, after a bad take, Marilyn would start crying, which necessitated further delays, first to calm her down and then to reapply her makeup. Watching the film recently for the first time in 15 years, I understood why Marilyn felt the way she did about it. Some Like It Hot is visually stunning, and Marilyn looks more beautiful and more natural in it than in any previous movie. But she doesn't have anything interesting to do with the performance. Her character is not a person on her own terms. She's just a beautiful object for Jack Lemmon and Tony Curtis's cowards in drag to fight over. The whole movie rests on the absurdity of none of the other characters being able to tell that Lemon and Curtis are men dressed as women, so it's difficult to single out Marilyn's sugar cane for swallowing their deception. But the movie gives her nothing mental to play. I've watched this movie in the past and enjoyed it, but this time, watching it with my heart aligned with Marilyn's, I thought it was kind of dumb, and I didn't laugh once. It's interesting that Wilder went from directing this straight into directing The Apartment, which has so much empathy for the exploited woman played by Shirley MacLaine. It's tempting to imagine Marilyn in the MacLaine part. It's possible it would have been perfect for her. She would have to be deglamorized for it, at least to some extent, and yet it would allow her to play emotions of longing and sadness that were familiar to her. Perhaps too familiar. But it gives credence to all of Marilyn's paranoia that Hollywood, Billy Wilder included, would never have thought of her for that role. When Marilyn had had doubts about Some Like It Hot going in, her husband had pushed her to take the part. Miller's visit to the set exacerbated the rockiness in the marriage. 
probably partially because Marilyn resented the situation he had put her in, and definitely because he resented being kept by his beautiful movie star wife. And yet, by the end of the shoot, Marilyn was once again pregnant. And then, three months later, she once again lost the baby. This time, she believed her gynecologist's warnings, that she could induce a miscarriage with her sleeping pills, and she blamed herself for killing the one thing she thought could save her. Given all the darkness that was emanating from her marriage, it's understandable that Monroe sought refuge in an affair with her next co-star, Yves Montan, on the set of Let's Make Love. Yves was married to Simone Signoret at the time, Recently, the British tabloid The Daily Mail published photos of Marilyn taken after the completion of Let's Make Love, in which she has a swollen stomach. The Daily Mail claims this is evidence that she was pregnant at the time with Montan's baby, which she either miscarried or aborted. This was the first I had heard of rumors of a post-some-like-it-hot pregnancy for Marilyn, and while it could be true, and certainly we'll never know for sure one way or another— It could also be true that Marilyn was bloated and overweight due to her excessive drinking. Based on the roundness of her face, that seems more likely to me than a pregnancy. When Marilyn was making Let's Make Love, Miller was initially in Ireland, working on the script of The Misfits with John Huston. But then he was on the set of Let's Make Love, having agreed to rewrite its abysmal script while the rest of Hollywood's union-affiliated writers were on strike. As Montan put it, Miller pocketed a check from Fox and complained about prostituting his art. He shouldn't have done it, for a lot of reasons. For one thing, Let's Make Love was never going to be a good enough film to justify turning scab for— And the result was that any lingering respect Marilyn had had for Miller frittered away. And yet they both had chosen to believe that the misfits could save their marriage. Certainly, the seed for the project had been Miller's love for Monroe and his desire to give her the film that she longed for that would allow her to climb out of the cage of the sexpot persona. But over the course of its three-year gestation... The Misfits had come to reflect Miller's growing disillusion with Monroe. By the time The Misfits went before the camera on location in Nevada in 1960, it was less a valentine and more of a death knell. Marilyn was mad at Miller for the way he, lazily and cruelly, she believed, transcribed their relationship and her real-life history into dialogue. Take, for instance, this scene between Clark Gable and Marilyn. What makes you so sad? I think you're the saddest girl I ever met. First man ever said that. I'm usually told how happy I am. That's because you make a man feel happy. I don't feel that way about you, Kay. Well, don't get discouraged, girl. You might. In fact, Miller had said exactly that to Monroe shortly after they met. And Gable's analysis of why men told her she was so happy was the perfect statement of Marilyn's effect on men and how it affected her. When she says she's not interested, you realize that the loving way that she's been looking at him is because she's hoping he can be her father. 
The fact that she apparently goes to bed with him that night anyway is heartbreaking and true to life. There was more. When Marilyn's Rosalind tells the husband that she's divorcing, that she's not going to allow him to make her feel sorry for him anymore, Marilyn could have been speaking to Joe DiMaggio or Arthur Miller. Equally ripped from real life, when Rosalind says of her parents, they both weren't there. And this exchange between Eli Wallach's Guido and Clark Gable's Gay. She's kind of hard to figure out, you know. One minute she looks kind of dumb, brand new, like a kid. And the next minute, she sure moves, though, don't she? Mm, she's real prime. It was condescending for Miller, the educated urbanite, to put his primal feelings in the mouths of crude, often drunk cowboys. But still, what makes the misfits satisfying is Miller's extremely biased understanding of the dynamic between his wife and the men she had married, himself included, filtered through director John Huston's belief that men cannot be the men they are around other men when they've been changed by their desire for a woman. The way Rosalind sends all three men in the film into an emotional tailspin, each is convinced they love her and that she belongs to them before they even know her, is an accurate mirroring of the real curse of Marilyn's life. But Marilyn hated making this movie. She hated the way it served as evidence of the way Miller saw her. She also hated that Miller had used theatrical outbursts in place of the kind of nuance that cinema could provide. The script had her making her point about the cruelty of rounding up horses by throwing a fit and not by arguing her case rationally. I guess they thought I was too dumb to explain anything, Marilyn fumed, her suspicions having been confirmed by the condescending way in which director Houston referred to her as dear. Marilyn was miserable to be once again playing a character that was all feeling and no brain. Marilyn felt that, like the horses, Rosalind was a dumb animal who could only survive thanks to the mercy of men. Of Arthur, she said, If that's what he thinks of me, well, then I'm not for him, and he's not for me. Worst of all, Miller continued to rewrite the dialogue while the film was in production, handing Marilyn new script pages every night, which she'd struggle to learn, then would become so stressed out that she'd have to take more pills than usual to get any sleep at all, then have to be forcibly awakened by Paula Strasberg in order to make it to set anywhere near her noon call time. By the end of the shoot, the married couple had dropped any pretense of staying together. Before the end of the shoot, Miller had started to become close to Inga Marath, an on-set photographer sent by Magnum, who would become his next wife. Before that, the Misfits shut down production for a week. The official explanation, one Houston put forth in his autobiography, is that Marilyn's drug addiction so urgently needed to be dealt with that she had to be sent to a hospital in Los Angeles in the middle of the movie. Houston's book should be considered to be about as truthful as the extended cocktail party anecdote that it basically is, but this version of the story has also appeared in most other sources. One source offering a different story 
is Donald Spado's biography on Marilyn, which contends the film was shut down because Houston, who would often fall asleep in his director's chair after having spent the whole night before at the craps table, owned a combined $50,000 to two casinos. And because he couldn't pay this debt himself and the budget for the film was spent, production had to be shut down so Houston could ask United Artists for more money. Spado claims that Houston told the studio that Marilyn was sick and needed help before he told them that he was out of money. Marilyn returned to Los Angeles, aware that the film had been shut down. It was only then that she allowed her personal psychiatrist and physician to talk her into checking into a hospital for the duration of the hiatus, to rest. The press was then told that Marilyn had had a breakdown and production was going to halt until she recovered. But this was no detox. In fact, her doctors continued to supply her with drugs while she was in the hospital and after she had returned to set. Houston claimed that he was disappointed to see that the hospital stay hadn't improved her condition. She greeted me euphorically, then went into a kind of trance. Houston remembered. She was the worst I'd ever seen her. Her hair was a tangle, her hands and feet were grubby. She was wearing only a short nightgown that wasn't any cleaner than the rest of her. These reports of how unkempt and unattractive Marilyn was off-screen, which are common, suggest that movie magic is truly miracle-working. Because on-screen, Marilyn looks incredibly beautiful. And more significantly, she looks like a natural beauty. In fact, in The Misfits, she looks like a real person on-screen for the first time. Finally, the actor's studio work was well-suited to the material, and the style in which it was shot. The Misfits feels like an independent film. Houston's interest in making this movie doesn't seem to have had anything to do with Marilyn. Perhaps the most exciting director of realistic action of the mid-century, Houston shows his passion for the material in the extended Mustang wrangling sequence, which abruptly changes the dramatic nature of the film, bringing a masculine correction to a movie that, for about an hour seemed to be emotionally on the side of Marilyn's struggling divorcee. And then, in its final minutes, the dynamic shifts again, as Gable's old cowboy enters into a one-on-one -on -one struggle with a single wild horse. Rosalind wants the horse to get away, and she's also afraid Gay is going to get hurt. Ultimately, Gay tames the horse and ties it up. Then, he lets it go, He's realized he can't be the kind of man he's always been. Rosalind has changed him. Maybe he's also realized that you can't force a wild animal to stay with you. He and Rosalind drive away together, both broken and terrified, and grateful to be together. When Gable died almost immediately after finishing The Misfits, the stress of that last movie shoot was blamed on Marilyn and not on Gable's macho insistence on doing his own stunts, despite having already suffered a heart attack. Though Houston's demons contributed to the sluggish pace of production, as he himself later admitted, it was Marilyn who was solely blamed for the production of the movie spiraling out of control. I'm Lauren Sherman, the writer behind Puck's fashion and beauty memo line sheet, and I'd like to welcome you to my new show, Fashion People. 
On every episode of Fashion People, I'll be talking to insiders about the stuff we're all whispering between the press releases. From M&A rumors to celebrity stylist dish to the future of legacy media. Be sure to follow and listen to Fashion People, a presentation of Odyssey in partnership with Puck. Available on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. In January 1961, Marilyn updated her will to give 75% of her estate to Lee Strasberg. She then went to Mexico to get a divorce. Let's Make Love and The Misfits were both considered to be box office disappointments, with the latter's enormous budget, the biggest ever for a black-and-white movie at that time, making sure that it couldn't turn a profit. A year and a half earlier, Elizabeth Taylor had become the highest-paid actress ever, signing a million-dollar contract to make Cleopatra with the same studio where Marilyn had spent most of her career. That production would redefine Troubled. The movie wouldn't be ready for release for another two years. And yet Marilyn made just $300,000 for The Misfits, despite the fact that Marilyn's films of the past few years had been comparative in profit to Liz's. But in 1961, there was a sense that Marilyn was on her way down, while Liz was newly ascendant, having beaten Death and Debbie Reynolds virtually all at once. Depressed over her professional and personal disappointments, Marilyn allowed her New York psychiatrist to take her to a hospital for treatment. Marilyn was then forcibly and against her will admitted into the psych ward at the Payne Whitney Institute. On her third night there, she managed to write a note and have it delivered to the Strasburgs. I'm on the dangerous floor, she told them. It's like a cell. They have my bathroom door locked, and I couldn't get their key into it, so I broke the glass. But outside of that, I haven't done anything that's uncooperative. She pleaded, I'm sure to end up a nut too if I stay in this nightmare. Please... Help me. The Strasburgs did not, and maybe could not, help her. After a few more days, a desperate Marilyn managed to contact Joe DiMaggio, with whom she hadn't spoken in six years. He came straight away to New York from Florida and arranged her immediate release. Marilyn then agreed to be checked into Columbia's hospital, which was much less like a prison. She stayed there for 23 recuperative days. She then moved to Los Angeles. She resumed seeing psychiatrist Ralph Greenson, one of the doctors who had presided over the possibly phony rehab during the Misfits shoot. Greenson crossed many a professional line with this patient, essentially welcoming her into his family like a daughter and then controlling her like a father, for periods prescribing that she live at his house. He forced her to send her closest friend and masseuse to New York on the grounds that he was a bad influence on her and hired a woman named Eunice Murray to serve as a housemaid slash companion slash caretaker to this 35-year-old woman. Greenson would acknowledge that in trying to wean Marilyn off of barbiturates, he had introduced her to an opiate, which he believed would be less dangerous. But he was still providing pills. According to the dismissed masseuse, Ralph Roberts, Dr. Greenson took no steps to get Marilyn off drugs. In fact, he provided them. 
At Greenson's urging, Marilyn bought a house in Beverly Hills. Although even after that, Greenson sometimes insisted that as part of Marilyn's treatment, she spend the night at her doctor's house. This seems to have been done in part to keep her away from other men who Greenson believed were a danger to her. She had resumed a romance with ex-husband DiMaggio, who Greenson wouldn't allow to see Marilyn when he'd come to the doctor's house looking for her. And another man who had come into Marilyn's life was a former patient of Greenson's. Frank Sinatra. Eddie Fisher recalled sitting with her, watching Sinatra sing in Nevada, in something like a trance. She was completely beautiful, completely drunk, and completely in lust. After an intense fling, Sinatra would surprise Marilyn by proposing to dancer Juliet Prowse. The Sinatra-Monroe relationship was over by February 1962, when Marilyn would begin shooting a movie with Sinatra's Rat Pack compatriot, Dean Martin. That movie was called Something's Got to Give, or it was supposed to be called that. It was never finished. In early 1962, 20th Century Fox was nearing bankruptcy, not least thanks to the debacle that was Cleopatra. But of all the films in production on the studio lot at that moment, Something's Got to Give was the highest budgeted. Marilyn hadn't wanted to make the movie because she was so in love with the script. In fact, there wasn't much of a script, and what there was would be continually rewritten during production. Even as Marilyn was shooting, no one knew yet how the movie would end. But she owed Fox two movies, and she hadn't had a hit since Some Like It Hot. She wanted to do something that would make the people with the power to allow her to keep making movies happy. She suspected that this would be her last chance if she didn't. At first, Marilyn was happy to be back at work, and she completed hair and wardrobe tests without a hitch. Then, on the first day of shooting at the end of April, she woke up with no voice and was diagnosed with sinusitis. The movie shot around her, and a week later, not fully recovered, Marilyn finally appeared for shooting. She worked a seven-hour day, burned herself out, and was ordered by a doctor to return to bed rest the following day. She was prescribed antibiotics, which interacted badly with the barbiturates, which Dr. Greenson continued to let her take. By the 14th day of shooting, Something's Gotta Give was four and a half days behind, and Marilyn had shot for only one day. Then, suddenly, Dr. Greenson left town for five weeks. He knew Marilyn was highly dependent on him, but he left her with full prescriptions. Then, Marilyn was suddenly well enough to go back to work. She shot for several days, all the way up to a planned hiatus, which had been penciled into the schedule long before to give Marilyn time for a trip to New York, where she had been invited to sing at a birthday celebration for President John F. Kennedy. But by the time this hiatus came up, the movie was six days behind schedule. Behind the scenes, Fox executives decided to cancel production on the movie, which would be cheaper than continuing a production which was still only half-scripted. Marilyn's absences were used as the excuse. Marilyn was on her way to New York as the studio drew up paperwork to threaten to charge Marilyn with breach of contract for having left the production. She received this letter the following morning in New York. That night, she did this. Happy 
The following morning, a Sunday, Marilyn returned to L.A. On Monday morning, she returned to the set. Two days later, she shot a scene in which she was supposed to be skinny dipping. In fact, she was wearing a flesh-colored bikini for all but one shot, in which she took off the top so that its strap wouldn't be visible from behind. If it had made it into a finished film, it would have made history as Marilyn Monroe's first filmed nude scene. At Marilyn's urging, publicity photographs were taken of her getting out of the pool and putting on a robe. She performed like a trooper on this and the next couple of shoot days, despite acquiring an ear infection from the pool, which required her to miss work on the following Monday morning. On June 1st, her 36th birthday, Marilyn reported for work. Marilyn spent that weekend alone. Her doctor was still away, as was Joe DiMaggio taking too many pills, and stewing over the breach of contract threat still hanging over her head. On Monday, she refused to report for work until Dr. Greenson returned to advise her. He did return, from Europe, at her call, arriving on Wednesday and going straight to her. That Friday, Greenson represented Marilyn in a meeting with Fox executives. He tried to convince them that now that he was back in town, he would make sure Marilyn was able to finish the film just as he had on The Misfits. But it was too late. Fox had already drawn up a $500,000 lawsuit against Marilyn, alleging breach of contract. She was fired. They tried to replace her with Lee Remick, but Dean Martin had co-star approval in his contract, and he showed token loyalty to Marilyn by refusing to work with Remick. Then, the studio decided that maybe it wasn't a good idea to throw the baby out with the bathwater the baby being those nude publicity photos. So, conversations began to restart the production with Marilyn that fall. Over the next two months, Marilyn was interviewed for Life magazine, and she did photo shoots for the magazine with Burt Stern. She spent a lot of time with DiMaggio, who was in the process of resigning from a corporate job he had acquired since their divorce, allegedly so that he could remarry Marilyn and be available to her. She bought a new, relatively conservative wardrobe. She and movie columnist Sidney Skolsky decided to partner to make a movie about Jean Harlow. And together, they traveled to the desert to obtain the blessing of Harlow's mother, which Mama Jean happily gave. Marilyn met with an executive at Fox about returning to the studio fold and restarting Something's Got to Give. These details make it seem like Marilyn was not acting like someone who was terrifically depressed. In many ways, she was planning for the future. But then, she also still had trouble sleeping and waking up, and Dr. Greenson and the physician he worked with, a Dr. Engelberg, made sure she was supplied with all the pills and vitamin injections she wanted or they thought she needed. On the night of Saturday, August 3rd, Marilyn Monroe's unresponsive body was found in her bed. Her lawyer, 
her two doctors, and Eunice Murray were present in the house. The LAPD received a phone call at 4.25 a.m., and the voice on the other line said, Marilyn Monroe is dead. She committed suicide. The cause of death on the death certificate was declared a probable suicide due to overdose of barbiturates. There was evidence of two types of downer in her system, Nembutal, which she routinely took via pill, and chloral hydrate, which was usually administered to Marilyn via an injection. There was not enough Nembutal in her stomach to have killed her, but coroner Thomas Noguchi would later suggest that an addict like Marilyn could have digested a large number of pills very quickly. 20 years after the fact, when there were moves to reopen the investigation into Monroe's death, the coroner stood by his original conclusion, and the reinvestigation went nowhere. But of course, questions have remained. One issue is that Noguchi's verdict was reached quickly, maybe too quickly, given how much time had passed between Marilyn's death and the investigation's beginning. The police were not called to the scene until Marilyn had been dead for several hours, and they did not strenuously investigate the statements made by Dr. Greenson and his lieutenant, Eunice Murray, who were present on the scene with the body. Murray told police that she had found the body at midnight. There were a few things unusual about this claim. One was that Marilyn had fired Eunice from her role as housekeeper. That Saturday was supposed to be her last day. Eunice never spent the night at Marilyn's house, but for some reason, that night, her last night in Monroe's employ, Eunice Murray slept in Marilyn's guest house. Nearly everyone who has ever written about Marilyn Monroe has a different theory as to how and why she really died. There are several competing and conflicting theories and timelines, so it's difficult to even reconstruct the basic events of the last day of her life in total certainty. I don't want to get too deep in the weeds on this, but there are a few things that seem worth noting. One of the big discrepancies between accounts is the disagreement between investigators and scholars as to the extent the Kennedys were involved. Marilyn's alleged associations with both President John F. Kennedy and Attorney General Bobby Kennedy have been the subject of much fascination and conspiracy speculation for decades. There is little agreement as to the substance of these relationships. Gloria Steinem's book on Marilyn, which draws heavily from Anthony Summers' book, Goddess, contends an affair with Jack Kennedy began sometime around the Democratic Convention in July 1960, which would have been while Marilyn was shooting the Misfits, and that a year later, she had moved on to his brother Bobby. This would have been in the period immediately after Marilyn's hospitalization and moved back to Los Angeles, when other sources say she was preoccupied with DiMaggio, Sinatra, and her growing dependence on Dr. Greenson. Steinem also forwards the story that Marilyn moved on from the president to the attorney general because she realized that Jack only wanted her for a fling. According to this version of the story, Bobby Kennedy, though happily married, 
took a more personal interest in Marilyn than his brother had, and she gave back what she got. The pair would spend hours on the phone, and when Bobby would come to Los Angeles, he and Marilyn would go to the beach in disguise. Fake beard and ball cap for Bobby, dark wig for Marilyn. These get-ups fooled everyone. No one recognized them as two of the most famous people in America. But soon the relationship became too visible. Bobby Kennedy made moves to cut off intimacy between Marilyn, himself, and his family by changing his private phone number. This was shortly after she had been fired from Something's Got to Give. Those who believe Marilyn was abandoned and cut off by two Kennedy brothers in a row may also believe that she was moved to intentionally overdose. In one version of the story, she saw Bobby Kennedy on the last day she was alive, was upset about their encounter, and he had to be secretly smuggled out of Los Angeles that night when word spread that Marilyn was dead. Other theories suggest that because of her connection to the most powerful men in the land, Marilyn was murdered. The mob killed Marilyn, one theory went, as part of an effort to take down the Kennedy administration, through which Attorney General Bobby had targeted the mafia. Or the Kennedys killed her to save themselves from scandal. Or any number of other parties killed her to ensure the Kennedys would be embroiled in scandal. On the opposite end of the spectrum is Donald Spado's book, which deflates not only these conspiracies, but most of the rumors of relationships between Marilyn and both Kennedy brothers. Having closely analyzed the available information about all three famous person schedules, Spado limits the likely relationship between Marilyn and the president to a handful of encounters, and as few as one sleepover, in the nearly one year between the fall of 1961 and May 1962, when Marilyn, in a see-through dress, hopped up on pills and champagne, sang happy birthday to Jack Kennedy at Madison Square Garden. Spado does not believe Marilyn had an affair with Robert Kennedy at all. He blames this myth on Norman Mailer's biography of Marilyn, which has been widely discredited, not least by Mailer himself, who admitted while ostensibly promoting the book that it was a rush job that he undertook for the money. According to Spado's reconstruction of Marilyn's last day, in the early afternoon, Dr. Greenson visited her for a session, and at the end of it, Marilyn was upset. She went to Peter Lawford's house and took a walk along the beach abutting his property. Other people who saw Marilyn at the beach that day remembered that she was obviously drugged. She returned to her house after about an hour and had another session with her psychiatrist, this one lasting until after 7 p.m., when Lawford called to see if Marilyn would be coming back to his house for dinner. Lawford remembered that Marilyn seemed to be barely conscious over the phone. He had to shout her name to get her to focus. Lawford became extremely worried about Marilyn. He wanted to go to her house and check on her, but a number of mutual friends told him not to worry or not to get involved. Finally, at 1.30 a.m., Lawford called his producing partner, Milton Evans, who told him the news. Marilyn was dead. This, of course, was three hours before the police found out. Spado accuses Dr. Greenson and Eunice Murray of conspiring to kill Marilyn and carrying out the murder via enema. 
His most compelling evidence to this argument is his analysis of the coroner's report and an interview with one of the men who wrote it, which reveals that the amount of barbiturate in her stomach was not enough to kill her. But there was much more being metabolized by her liver. And according to a pathologist named Dr. Arnold Abrams, who Spato interviewed, quote, there was something crazy going on in this woman's colon. This may have been because she was over-reliant on enemas to counteract constipation caused by her pills and to relieve bloating before a shoot day. Spato, drawing on the opinion of Abrams, contends that Marilyn could not have self-administered a lethal dose of barbiturate via an enema. Lois Banner, one of Marilyn's most recent biographers and the one who is most transparent about her methodology, notes that Marilyn gave herself enemas all the time. She also notes her suspicions regarding one of Spado's other sources, John Minor, who worked in the Attorney General's office and also believed Marilyn was murdered via enema. Banner notes that she checked up on Minor and discovered he had lied to her about having worked at the Kinsey Institute, amongst other things. My suspicions of him increased, Banner writes, when he suggested that we write a study of the Marquis de Sade together while extolling the virtues of enemas to me. She also discovered that he had a history of sexually harassing women by trying to give them enemas. Banner does not offer a personal conclusion as to how Marilyn died. She largely dismisses the Greenson theory while giving credence to the enema as delivery system. She will not exclude from suspicion Bobby Kennedy. Certainly, the Kennedys imbue a level of glamour and excitement to the situation, rescuing it from what seems to me like the most likely scenario, that it was an accident that either Greenson was trying to control and subdue an angry Marilyn, or Marilyn was trying to quiet herself. And either way, too much of the wrong kind of drug was administered. I don't see any reason why anyone who was in the house with her would have wanted Marilyn to die, Marilyn included. And I don't think there's enough evidence to implicate the Kennedys, the FBI, or anyone else. Addicts die. Their addictions kill them. This is sad, but it's not dramatic. It often seems unbearably sudden, even though it's the end result of a process that's been happening for years. But compared to murder, it's boring. And like Arthur Miller and so many others in Marilyn's life, and those who never met her but saw her on screen and believed she was special, a lot of people want to believe that the great goddess couldn't have gone out that way. People don't want to believe the mundane. An LA Times review of Spato's book, while largely complimentary, refuses to let go of the idea of a Kennedy connection. Its last line, As for M.M. and the Kennedys, I'm sorry, Mr. Spato, but yes, there is a Santa Claus. Next week, we will talk about an actress who, in the most literal sense of the term, was a post-Marilyn blonde. Join us then, won't you?
Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. This episode was written, narrated, and produced by Karina Longworth. That's me. Our research and production assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholtz. Our editor is Sam Dingman. And our logo was designed by Teddy Blanks. Special thanks to our special guest, Ryan Johnson, who returned as John Houston. For more information about this episode and other episodes, please go to our website, youmustrememberthispodcast.com. If you like the show, please tell anyone you can, any way that you can. You can find us on Twitter, at RememberThisPod, and we're on Facebook and Instagram, too. We'll be back next week with another tale from the secrets and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night.